observation, the procurement of information through the senses. It's the primary way humans acquire education, and it has everything to do with how we perceive ourselves. Yet, considering how important observation is, is it strange how infrequently we set time aside to enter the observer state? We're encouraged to talk and act. Everybody tells us, don't just sit there, do something. But like the sign on the wall of my therapist's office says, maybe what we need to be telling each other more is, don't just do something, sit there. This is Mixed Media, a podcast by Kavi Gupta. My name is Philip Barcia. In this episode, I gain a deeper understanding of the observer state with the help of New York-based visual artist Mia Ando. Mia's latest solo exhibition opened at Kavi Gupta Washington Boulevard on September 3, 2022. Featuring new works on metal, paper, and wood, the exhibition is expressive of the transitory and immaterial quality of night clouds, rain, and the cycles of the moon. The exhibition's title is Kumoji, Cloud Path, a road traversed by birds and the moon. Like all of Mia's works, it is expressed in two languages, Japanese and English. The word kumoji represents what Mia refers to as a lexical gap, a succinct expression of something in one language for which another language has no direct linguistic equivalent. Mia is a citizen of both Japan and the United States. In addition to pursuing her studio practice, she has spent the past two decades documenting such lexical anomalies in her two native languages and compiling them into a dictionary. These lexical gaps reveal something about the differences between how members of various cultures observe, reflect upon, and perceive their world. Here's Mia. I hear some noise in the background. I don't know if there's a... You hear a siren? I do. I might be getting arrested soon. I'm not sure. <laughs> Will you be in good company? A lot of the most interesting people are in prison. <laughs> well, I've thought a lot about, as we're letting that go by, I, I've been thinking a lot about the observer topic. And it's really, really interesting. And I, I just wanted to say thank you so much because it's a really interesting thing to think about. And I've, I've actually enjoyed thinking about being an observer and also participating in a dialogue with an observer. I was concerned a little bit that um, it was too esoteric of a topic. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I just wrote a dictionary of 2,000 rain words. Nothing is too esoteric for me. <laughs> you know? I'm fond. I have a particular fondness for esoteric, arcane things <laughs> in particular. Tell me a little bit about that dictionary that you wrote. Well, you know, I just finished it, and... Uh, I, I guess they say it's esoteric because the project was, it started a really, really long time ago. Honestly, it started when I was in grad school and I started making lists of lacuna, which are lexical gaps, right? So words that don't have a direct translation. And I was looking at Buddhist iconography, so imagery that communicated abstract ideas, you know, mercy, hell, heaven, things that you can't touch. And I'd grown up, you know, I grew up in a Buddhist temple, so I'd been uh, around all this imagery. 
And I became interested in, in particular, these ideas and words that didn't have a direct translation. So I just started making lists. And I ended up with 2,000 words that do not exist in the English vocabulary. And I made drawings of each of them because words are entire concepts. They're, they're ideas. So these are 2,000 missing concepts, ideas that have been deemed of value in Japan and in Japanese society to the degree that they have been given a name. And I was fascinated by this gap. So I have been looking at, you know, a number of voids and uh, empty spaces. And I thought looking at it from this linguistic viewpoint was a very interesting way to illustrate these, these gaps. I would love to read your whole dictionary and I would love to like really <laughs> dive into each one of those words. Cause I guess I'm wondering, are the concepts missing from uh, the English language or is there something about the culture that revolves around the English language that makes these things unspeakable? Well, I, I don't know that culturally these concepts or ideas are unspeakable, but I do know that, there is a there's a negative connotation, for example, with words in and around emptiness. And I've run into this as a Japanese and English speaker. There's, you know, for example, ku, which is a word that means sky and emptiness, i.e. void. It's also the name of one of the five elements uh, in Japanese culture. Whenever I discuss emptiness to an English-speaking audience, it's got this sort of nihilistic kind of vibe, or I believe it's being perceived in that way, whereas empty is filled with opportunity. That's a intrinsically different uh, perspective on one particular word or concept. I know that in the American culture that I have grown up in, and, and I'm American as well as being Japanese, but there isn't a word for intermittent early autumn rain that falls lightly and softly. You know, there just, there just isn't a word for that. Uh, it's such a travesty because it, I would love that word. I would I use know, that you, word. <laughs> you would use it all the time. It's a, it's, it would be part of your daily conversation, uh, you know, for the three months of autumn. Why is that? That is the place that has derived, that I've derived all, all of my kind of attraction to these missing, really beautiful ideas. Why are, are they so beautiful? Because of the minute attention to nature, it, it really informs us of the very soul of the society of Japan. In, in my view, there is a historical reason. I mean, Shintoism deifies nature, for one. Um, Buddhism has placed, you know, the foundation concept in Buddhism is impermanence. I was raised in, for the early part of my life in, in Japan in a Buddhist temple, and my, my family... Is very traditional. 
you know, I'm the 16th generation of the family, very, very, very traditional. And I have a conditioning, which is to have an acute attention and awareness to nature. We all have access to nature. And so nature, the vernacular, the vocabulary of nature uh, was used to discuss philosophical things. And nature became a mirror. The concept that you talked about earlier, earlier about the light falling rain on an early autumn morning. What is that word in Japanese? Aki no murasamo. That's one word. One way to say intermittent autumn rain. This one. There's all one. <laughs> Will you say that one more time so I can really hear it slowly? Aki no murasame. It's rain that falls intermittently in the autumn, but it, it can also sound, it's the sound of lightly falling rain on thatched roofs of a village. Very, very, very specific rain. <laughs> you know, it's okay. only in autumn. Okay. I may not be able to use that in my neighborhood, but I will use it somewhere <laughs> at, some, at some time. <laughs> well, there's actually, you know, after, <laughs> that's sort of a general term. I mean, there, there is like 20 words to describe that, which is even, which makes things really even more complicated. It's a, it really, like everything else in art, it's a compulsion, right? So so one is compelled, my belief system, the way that I, my Weltanschauung, the way that I view the world is to look at these, take notice of these things that don't occur in the English language and I want to preserve them and, 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 and record them and before they disappear in, into the mists of time, which they, uh, a large portion, already have. They're, they're arcane, they're anachronistic, they're not valued and used in our, in our conversation today. But it, it represents the value system of a long time ago, you know, I have some words from the 800s, uh, you know, nine, the year 900s. And, you know, I, I invoke these things with the titles of, of the work. So kumoji, soraku, these words that it isn't only to, to highlight the Japanese words. It is another way of reiterating the concept of the work. I look at impermanence and time and, and transitoriness in the paintings and the drawings and the word, the title that is assigned to that work is another way to explain the work, much like the medium. The medium also viscerally communicates the concept of the work. So I employ language in, in that way and the, the missing words are of particular interest to me because I'm interested in, I'm interested in, in this idea of voids. The title of your show that's opening at Kavi Gupta has that quality of you've given it two names, a Japanese word and then an English translation, Kumoji parentheses, cloud path slash a road traversed by birds and the moon. So this is an example of the type of word that would be in your dictionary. 
It is. I selected that word, kumoji. The literal, literal translation is cloud road. And the meaning is it's a path in the sky that is used by birds in the moon and goes through clouds. What all that conjures is all good in my, in my book. Anything that has or gives a sense of wonder, I fixate on it. It gives me a sense of wonder. It's just, I think it shifts the perspective of really even looking at the sky, clouds. Uh, you know, clouds are something we regard from down here on earth and that are part of our environment, but they occupy another uh, space. They're blocking a road. The moon is, looks as if it's going through it. A word, first of all, that is an arcane word. It, it, it is not used regularly. It's an invitation to observe something from a totally different perspective. I think art isn't a soliloquy. I don't, I don't regard it as a soliloquy. I regard it as it's a silent dialogue. It's a communication where an artist makes something and puts it forth and it is viewed um, it is observed, and the observers have a, it, some sort of uh, reaction. Perhaps they bring their entire memories and histories and all of their knowledge to looking at a thing. So everything we see changes how we feel. I mean, we're different human being every single moment. I read an interesting statistic the other day that, on average, fifty-four thousand four hundred photographs are taken worldwide per second. 4.7 billion photographs are taken every day. And well, this is from uh, 2020, 1.72 trillion photos were taken that year. Wow. You know, we're all walking around with these cameras in our pockets, really high quality cameras, you know, and we're taking all these pictures and we're sharing all these pictures. And yet despite the fact that we're all taking pictures all the time and we're looking at images all the time, our capacity to understand what we're looking at, our our visual literacy to understand what we're looking at and our patience to observe is that it is, in my opinion, at a record low. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about that. The observer state versus the photographer state. Let's start there. Like I'm observing versus I'm, Mm. I'm capturing. Well, it's a really interesting statistic. The ability to freeze moments. I think a lot about that yearning. What is that yearning to, you know, take a, take a quick picture of that really cute dog I just saw or the sunset or, or whatever, <laughs> all those tens of thousands of photographs are. Ultimately, maybe it becomes our memory there's a Japanese word, mono no aware, which I think it's been mostly translated as the pathos of things. I, I think of it more as a sensitivity to things. And it really is about identifying and appreciating a very fleeting moment. So you're saying, oh, that was, it was so beautiful and it's gone. Right, so it's an awareness of the present moment. Um, I, mean, I would I would venture to say that 
all this picture taking is <laughs> one could argue, I, I'm sure nobody argues this, but I, I kind of could, I suppose, and say this is the entire world experiencing and participating in this idea of mono no aware. You know, the, my interest in, in looking at fleeting moments, in particular, you know, clouds and the sunset, the sunrise, all things, the moon, all things that are constant. It, it's the moment of change that I'm interested in, identifying those moments. It sounds nihilistic, but it isn't. There's actually a psychological shift that occurs when you recognize that everything is impermanent, including ourselves and our lives. So it isn't this notion of sort of, oh, God, what a bummer. To me, it is, God, I, you know, I was very lucky to have experienced that. And beauty is contingent on transitoriness. The more ephemeral it is, the more beautiful it becomes. A falling cherry blossom, it's, it's there, and then it's gone right away, and it becomes more and more beautiful And there's an empathy that goes along with recognizing that this thing, this experience, it, you feel a kind of a, a, a wistfulness. It's, it's gentle, but it's wistful. It, it's, it's beautiful, now it's gone. And so I think we, we yearn to keep things, right? You love something, you hold it, you keep it, you pick it up, you pick up the baby, you put it close to you, 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 know, you hold everything close to you. We want permanence in, in, in some ways, I think as the uh, idea of taking a picture, keeping it. The math of impermanence that you talked about, how mm -hmm. the more impermanent it is, the more beautiful it is. For people who don't know, when you the way these cloud paintings that you create come into being is it starts with you observing clouds. And while you're in that observer state, you're occasionally taking photographs of these clouds, which you've described to me in a funny way as kind of like taking pictures of nothing, because it's like, by the time you take the picture, it's like it's changed, it's gone. Whatever that thing was that inspired you to say, now, take a picture now, it's over. And then you're taking these photographs into your studio, and you're selecting ones to work from, and then you're making paintings from those photographs that aren't exactly mimicking or depicting the photograph, but they're inspired by the photograph. This painting that you end up with is concrete so there's an interesting math there to me where you start with the most beautiful possible thing which is this ethereal natural moment and it sort of distills down to a painting which is very permanent and therefore less beautiful so talk to me about how your paintings end up being less beautiful than the thing that they're inspired by or evoking <laughs> it's a funny thing it's paradoxical there's The language of paradox juxtaposition is, is how I construct the works because the the ground, you know, the, the, the paintings are on metal, metal which we regard as being quite permanent. And the notion is that nothing is permanent, that everything is in a constant state of change. So to place impermanent vocabulary like clouds onto a metal substrate is it's juxtaposing um, or in in 
in some ways it's not because like clouds are the same as mountains basically because one one would think a cloud is very transitory and a mountain is permanent but in fact they are the same and this notion of impermanence it's that you know the, the fundamental nature of reality is that all constituent forms that create the universe are temporary that is a buddhist thought it's also a drawn from quantum physics everything is in constant change so we are no different than a piece of metal we are a piece of metal may appear to be and connote or evoke the idea of permanency but it is not nothing is nothing is permanent it's like taking a picture of time unfolding so sunset sunrise those are two times of day where color is time color is a clock in the early early this morning i was sitting sitting on my terrace and it's it was really, it was dark. It was, it was actually pitch dark. And then it became a little bit yellow, oranger, oranger, oranger. Or, you know, the, every second is a different color. And then it's, it eventually became, turned into blue. And the same with clouds. Every single photograph looks a little bit differently because they're in constant motion. And oftentimes I layer those, uh, that vocabulary. So it's, it's all really in an attempt to look at these very transitional moments that are, and they are fleeting. Can I ever make something as beautiful as nature? No, <laughs> there's no, you know, there's just no way. But I think nature is a timekeeper and it is the vernacular that, that I have sort of identified as something that can express this unfolding of time, these moments of mono no aware. I want to ask you about the viewer's entitlement, the entitlement that art viewers, the art audience has to choose how they interact with or don't interact with an artwork. Your work, on one hand, is kinetic and changes as the light changes and as I move around it. And in some sense, it might also inspire me to action because it might cause me to go out and look at the clouds at night in a way that I haven't before. But overall, your work seems to just want to be looked at. I I don't, I don't really think of it in, in the exact terms of, of the viewer's entitlement or the viewer's gaze, but it is it is certainly an invitation to consider this perspective. It may not be, I think many people may, may not take notice of uh, nearly black clouds in a nearly black sky that may be missed. Do, do I consider the works a call to action? I believe that everything we see changes how we feel. Um, it's an invitation, I think, to look at something as ordinary as the sky, as ordinary as clouds or the moon from a different vantage point. I, I really respect others, but people have an understanding and awareness and can draw their own conclusions, wh- whatever they may be, if it is to take action 
or to actively uh, be more participant in in comprehending and, and, and being sensitive to the environment, great. I wonder if it's a call to inaction. <laughs> Maybe. You know, I, I used to look at, at the practice of Buddhism where you, you see a Zen practitioner and they're just sitting there. I just thought, well, it's, what are they doing when I was a child? I just They're just sitting there. But they are not sitting there. They are completely engaged in an activity of the mind. Shunju Suzuki, a Zen monk, said about meditation and thought, you know, you leave the front and back door open and the thoughts come in and, and but you don't invite them for tea. You know, this idea that you don't have control over your thoughts, but you can, you can focus your thoughts and you can allow waves of thought and thinking to, to pass by. And, and it is an active engagement of your mind. I'm not exactly sure if the works call for an action, an actual action, but thinking and the change in, in, in your thought process is an active practice. It's active observation of one's mind. I do believe it, it starts with your mind and the way one perceives things. I, I think I, I, with my work, it's an invitation to, to look at an alternate, alternative way of regarding something very ordinary. You know, I, I was raised in a paradigm where there were 72 seasons of the year, 365 days. It wasn't four seasons. You know, I, I'm from a place where at, at, at a certain time, there wasn't 24 hours of the day. It was 12. You know, the hour of the rat is two hours. The hour of the horse is two hours long. So if there is not just one way, I mean, that's, that, that it's really a metaphor. We're saying you may, you may think that there are 24 hours and that is, you know, the gospel that is, that is, but it's not. And when we have different ways um, of looking at things and, and amplifying these other ways of looking at very ordinary things, maybe we become more tolerant. I want to ask you, though, um, about another body of your work that addresses some of these same issues and also addresses observation in an interesting way. And that's your burnt wood paintings with it's silver nitrate, right? Mm -hmm. You're using silver nitrate to uh, create a mirror and a reflective surface in, in which we can sort of see ourselves. And then it's painted over burnt wood, which is using a Japanese technique of wood burning that protects the wood from disease and rot. I borrowed the technique from mirror making. So a, a mirror that we have in our homes is most typically a pane of glass that has a very thin layer of this pure silver. Because silver is our most reflective of metals. So I've sort of flipped that around in this um, in the wood uh, works, and it is in the name of well, dematerialization. The the wood is charred in the style of shosugiban or yakisugi, and that is my the temple that I grew up in in Okayama, and all the houses are black 
the chart, the, it's an architectural cladding that is uh, used precisely as you said. It, it's uh, the wood is charred to really make it stronger. It's a fireproofing. So if the wood is charred, you don't have this conflagration. You have sort of a smoldering, particularly in Japan, because you've got you know grass. Basically, you've got straw mats and paper doors and wood. So it's very the fire is, is is devastating. And I've always thought it was very poignant and, and poetic to put upon the wood this destructive force. You you burn the wood and it protects you and it becomes stronger. And so there's all kinds of metaphors in and around that practice. And I happen to have grown up in a house that was charred wood. And it's got this undeniable recognizable texture burnt wood looks like burnt wood and it's got a history onto itself of, of having gone through this destructive force and coating it with the silver creates an object of materiality that it's sort of funny because it it dematerializes it turns into a mirror you can you get these reflections the reflections look like water because it um, it's broken up by the surface and you can also see yourself kind of in a watery way um, so we've got a number of elemental processes conjoined. As I said, I'm I'm interested in in particular in this one element of void. Going back to one of the words you talked about earlier when we were talking about your dictionary of um, of those archaic words and phrases in Japanese that don't seem to have any equivalent in English. And you mentioned specifically the word ku, which is um, which is the title of one of your burnt wood silver nitrate works and how that word means sky, void, and mirror. Everything you just said really helps me understand that even, even more, thinking about a void as a mirror, to see myself in a void and to see a void as a place of potential. That's a very helpful way to see myself. That's not that's not what I usually see when I look in the mirror. <laughs> I'm an ardent admirer of a historical text, the Heart Sutra, which is a very very short text, but it says form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And it has the word ku, the word you mentioned in it, I think 27 times. It's very short. I think it's got 130 characters, but 27, you know, a third of that is talking about this idea of ku, which it's, it's, it's sky, but it also can mean space. And if you think about it as an element, one of, you know, there's fire, wind, water, earth, void. And I, <laughs> I find that to be sort of vastly intriguing how is form emptiness? How is emptiness form? I investigate this idea through the woodworks in particular. It all comes back to this idea that because everything is impermanent, everything is in constant flux, nothing is, is fixed. And this impermanence idea is illustrated by this word ku. It's not an emptiness that Someone has taken something from you. I, I, as we discussed earlier, empty or void 
has this sort of negative connotation, like you've lost something in, in Western culture, but in Eastern culture, it is exactly the opposite. It is filled with potential. I mean, one way to look at it, I, I often think of ma, the idea of empty space. You, you see ma illustrated in Chinese painting and in conversation. They're gaps, but it's not that it doesn't have anything in it. You know, when you see a, a painting, it's got like a big white space and a teeny tiny little frog or something, or a small little tree. The white space, that is what the entire the painting is about. It's, an, it's a space that is filled with opportunity. The word observation itself implies seeing with eyes, but obviously not everyone's eyes see the same way and not every creature has eyes, but anyone who can perceive is in a sense observing. Is there a better word for observation or for, obs- or for observing that extends beyond seeing? In English? <laughs> <laughs> in in uh, any language. Well, it, it just sort of occurred to me that I, I'm very fond of the word evoke. It's not necessarily visual. It's, it's very much a cerebral kind of experience. It could be an emotion. So to evoke something, perhaps that is part and parcel of observing something. You know, we observe artworks. It's part of our participation in, in a dialogue with the work, perhaps with the, the artist, uh, with ourselves. In the mind, everything is occurring. The whole world is occurring, right? So it's, here's, um, you know, Miss Mia sitting out in the dark, taking pictures of night clouds that, that look like nothing, but it's everything. There's everything there. There's it's, an, it's such an active observation. It's an active participation. When I look at art, I think automatically that I'm, I'm looking at someone's thoughts. I'm looking at a thought. You know, I, I mean, really, I, I think of art and, and art making as being, it's a, it's a practice of thought. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a record, these, all these things that you end up with, paintings and drawings, it's, is residue of thinking. It's a cerebral exercise. It's an intellectual practice. We're taking something in, associating it perhaps with other things, conjuring memories. Perhaps it evokes something like, wow, I'm going to look at a cloud in a totally different way now. Maybe when it's dark, I'll look for a night cloud. You know, et cetera, et cetera, whatever that may be. I don't know if there is a better term for observing a, a contemplative you know contemplation and observation thinking etc I would say that my answer is no I don't know a better way to say <laughs> sometimes I, I think language fails us I mean that's that's why I employ two completely different languages in an attempt to evoke what that thought is and I often think about the non-rational. I mean, that's why we make pictures, right? As, as artists, it's even my dictionary. 
it's words, it's English, it's Japanese, it is um, a definition, it's, a, it's, a, it's an image. Why did I make the drawings? Why did I need to make? I'm not illustrating, I'm not in, in, into illustrating a book that has, it, it is exactly the opposite of that. In fact, it is that I am employing another tool that I have to evoke something. These are words that most people have not heard of. So I have a, a, a picture of it, what it looks like in my mind. That, that's how I feel that that word looks. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's fascinating to talk to you about the work that you're making. It straddles and intersects these different worlds of observing, speaking, verbalizing, picturing, and visualizing, and just of thinking. It's really just metaphoric. It is that from my vantage point, all of these methods, all of these things, you know, it's, it's a conduit, whether it's my art or, or any type of, or just nature. It's, it's like a mirror of yourself. You, you kind of have a reckoning with uh, what's in your own mind and observing your own thoughts. It's, it's actually an, an observation of, of one's own mind, right? So it really kind of is another way, I think, to just understand the self. Thank you, Mia Ando. This has been an absolute <laughs> joy to uh, to talk to you about your work and to talk oh, to you about Phil. observation. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Mixed Media, a podcast by Kavi Gupta. Mixed Media is a window opened unexpectedly onto a landscape of ideas, featuring a rotating cast of artists, curators, writers, art collectors, and members of the Kavi Gupta staff, casually discussing the sweetness, mystery, and chaos of great art in front of a microphone. Thank you to my guest, Mia Ando, a multidisciplinary abstract artist based in New York, whose works reference the ephemerality of nature and the transitory essence of existence. Mia's work has been the subject of recent solo exhibitions at the Asia Society Museum Houston, the Noguchi Museum New York, and the American University Museum in Washington, D.C. Her work has been included in recent group exhibitions at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Haus der Kunst Munich, the Bronx Museum, and the Queens Museum of Art New York. Artworks by Mia are included in the public collections of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Detroit Institute of Art, the Luft Museum, Amberg, Germany, Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art, the Santa Barbara Museum of Art, and the Museum of Art and History, Lancaster, California, among many others. She holds a bachelor's degree in East Asian Studies from the University of California, Berkeley, and she also studied East Asian Studies at Yale University and Stanford University, and apprenticed with a master metalsmith in Japan. Kavi Gupta amplifies voices of diverse and underrepresented artists to expand the canon of art history. Through innovative and ambitious exhibitions, multimedia programming, and rigorous publications, we foster an evolving conversation among international communities about art and ideas. In addition to hosting more than a dozen major exhibitions each year and participating in vital international art fairs, we host Artist Talk, facilitate special programming in support of philanthropic causes, and foster intellectual discourse by regularly bringing artists, curators, and collectors together with academics and experts in the contemporary art field. My name is Ramsey Hoy. My name is Chanel Lacey. 
and my name is Philip Barcio. Thank you for listening to Mixed Media.